Hello, and welcome to episode 36 of the History of Yugoslav Football podcast, The Revival. The 1960s were spent with the focal point of Yugoslav football in Belgrade. The 70s would spend plenty of time attempting to ensure that the focal point would be anywhere but. In a way, the story of the decade will be about regions we've perhaps talked about less to date. We see our first major Slovenian players in Brane Oblak and Danilo Popovoda. We see Bosnian clubs doing more than just a solitary passing appearance at the sharp end of the table and they provide consistently high-quality players and sides beyond what they have done previously. We also see our first major exportation of players and managers abroad as, rather than leaving for money-spinning contracts to round off their careers, players start moving in their prime. One thing the 1970s did not begin with for Yugoslavia was a World Cup, as, in spite of being European runners-up, and hammering Finland 9-1 at the JNA with hat-tricks for Zambata and Musemic, Yugoslavia were beaten to qualification by Belgium, thanks mainly to Belgium having a better head-to-head record against the team third in the group, Spain. The sense of what might have been will only have been exacerbated by a 4-0 hammering of the Belgians in Yugoslavia's final group game. Belgium would then go on to a group exit in Mexico itself, losing out to the USSR and Mexico. Rajko Mitic would survive for now, but would remain in charge only until the end of 1970, when a 4-0 friendly loss to the Soviets would more or less do for him. Vujadin Boskov would take over. Boskov's reign would begin where our story of the 1970s will. Split. For much of the 1960s, Hajduk were poor, and with the changing of a decade came a changing of fortunes. For one, this would be the second season in charge for manager Slavko Lusticha. His first season at the club had seen Hajduk firmly mid-table, but it would be fair to say that that placing was deceptive. Their defensive record was second best in the league, and their goal score total was fifth best. As such, it would be fair to say that all in all, Hajduk were a better side in that first season than the league position suggested. The club were putting things back together, and it only needed an extra catalyst to turn them from a good side into a great one. Those catalysts were in the spine of the side. Filson Zoni at fullback, Juricha Jakovic in the midfield, and Dragan Holser at centre-back. None of these were new to the club, but as we hit 1970, Holser was starting to enter his peak, and Zoni and Jakovic both turned 20, and with adding a cherry on top of this cake, there was also the emergence of Miko Jovanic at 18. This team organically grew alongside the two mainstays of the side that had kept the team afloat for most of the late 1960s, Petar Nalaveta and The result was a convincing side that swept the league with ease once they got going. Assisted by the drop-off of Sven Svesta, who fell to sixth, partly due to the difficulties of maintaining their European commitments, Heiduk went the season losing only three times in the league, 
away to second place Celius Nikar, to Shellic, and to OFK, albeit they would ride their luck at times. As mentioned in episode 34, the side would see their home game against OFK abandoned due to crowd troubles, resulting in anti-Belgrade protests in split led by the Torcida amidst the Croatian spring, and seeing the FA overturn their ruling of the game being made into a 3-0 loss for Hajduk back to the score when it was abandoned of 2-all. The season would open with a pair of one-all draws followed by a 1-0 win against Maribor with all goals coming from Jovanic. They would also endure a mid-season run of only one win in seven, including four nil-nil draws. But once they put their foot down in the late spring, they pulled away, going unbeaten in their final ten. While Sylvester did drop off in the league, they were able to recover matters in the cup with a convincing 6-0 final win over Sloboda Tuzla. While at the bottom of the league, Minos, Bohr and Švenka will be relegated, with Vardar and Sucheska returning to the top flight for the following season. Sylvester would also have other major matters to deal with that season. But before we get to those, it's time to put another competition to bed. Last episode, we rode the Balkans Cup to its very end, and this time, we're going to do the same with the first European competition we ever came across, the Mitropa Cup. The competition itself had essentially become a cross-season competition by this point, in prestige sitting somewhere between a League Cup and the Emirates Cup. When we last left it, it was the rather silly 1960 edition, which had seen the competition change for a single year to a battle of the leagues rather than a traditional club trophy. The creation of the Cup Winners' Cup and the Balkans' Cup had taken a lot of importance away from the Mitropa, and while it was never really in threat of collapse, unlike the Balkans' Cup, it was gradually withering. In terms of Yugoslav interest in the 1960s, we would only really look at the 67-68 edition, which was won by Svenas Vesta over Spartak Tanava. But even then, it was easy to see how much the competition had fallen. Yugoslavia's entrants were 5th, 6th and 8th in the league. Italy sent 6th, 10th and 11th. And Czechoslovakia even sent a side from the second tier. But the 1970s would at least start with something to shout about. Šelik Šenica, who had been 13th the season prior, went on a run. Defeating Catania, Hungary's Diostio and MTK, then, in September 1971, winning the final 3-1 over Austria Salzburg, now better known as RB Salzburg, and, much like their defeated opponent's future, the victory would give Schellig wings. The following season, the competition moved to a group format, and Schellig would top a group featuring Homved and Sparta Prague before winning the now two-legged final over Fiorentina 1-0. Then, they would go and beat Sibriovka Bieno and LASK Linz to reach a third successive final, however fell to Tatabanyai Bernyats in the final. The Mitropa Cup played a big part in Schellig's history from this. The funds from their first success would be put towards building a new stadium, Bellino Polier. It would open on the day of Schellig's home leg against Fiorentina, drawing in 35,000, a stadium record which stands to this day and stands in stark contrast to the normal level of interest in the tournament, perhaps shown best by the attendances of the group stage of the following season of only 4,000. By the end of that decade, 
The tournament had moved to a round-robin format for an extended period come Voivodina's win in the 76-77 season against three other sides, Vasas, Fiorentina and Sparta Prague. At this point, the cup began to hit that biggest of issues, withdrawals. Partisans win the following season saw Rapid Vienna not play. The following season wouldn't happen at all, and then the competition would be watered down completely come the 80s by providing entry to the teams who had won their second tiers the prior season, resulting in a drop in quality and in how seriously some sides took it, given that the prevailing thought of promoted sides was to secure their league positions and not to try and win a side so European competition. The Metropa became dominated by Italy and they, unlike other sides, took the competition seriously to the point that they funded and hosted almost all of the last decade's editions. It would throw up at least one bit of trivia. Who is the only player to ever win both the Metropa Cup and the European Cup? Would be a certain Mr Franco Baresi. By the time the last edition came in 1992, Yugoslavia was already splitting up and would end with the peculiar sight of the Yugoslav entrance and winners Borac Banjaluka winning the tournament a few weeks after Bosnia-Herzegovina proclaimed independence, so, in theory, they weren't actually part of Yugoslavia. As if to show how far the tournament had fallen, only 1,000 people in a 25,000 capacity stadium watched that final final in Foggia, after Borac had knocked out the home hosts in the prior round. Even that sparsely attended final saw crowd trouble, and that... In addition to the revival of the Anglo-Italian Cup and the breakup of Yugoslavia itself, led Italian clubs to lose interest and the competition was binned completely. So with the Metropa Cup put to bed, it's time to take a look at those that will remain with us and remain relevant right up to the end. Olympia's excursion in the Cup Winners' Cup would be short-lived, as well they would obtain a creditable one-all draw in Ljubljana. Sport would demolish the Slovenian club 8-1 in Lisbon. One other competition going to the bin, albeit evolving rather than disappearing, was the Fairs Cup, where Yugoslavia will be represented by Dinamo, Zelesnika, Hajduk and Partizan. Of those, only the Croat clubs will get beyond the first round. Zelesnika would lose 7-9 on aggregate to Anderlecht, who had been runners-up in the competition the previous season, while Partizan would be hammered by Dinamo Dresden. Hajduk would get beyond Savia Sofia, with Dinamo getting past Portugal's Barrense. Portuguese opposition would do for Hajduk in the second round, however, as Vitoria Setubal knocked them out 3-2. Dinamo would get beyond that round, defeating Hamburg 4-1 after a famous 4-0 win at Maximia, but their adventure would end in the third round against Twente, earning a 2 all draw in Zagreb thanks to a double from Gushimetal, before losing 1-0 in the Netherlands. All of which left Svenas Viesta's participation in the European Cup, which began against Ripesti. A 2-0 away loss would not bode well, but Sviesta would take control of the Maracanã and ease through with a 4-0 home win and begin what would be a campaign centred on the East. In the second round, it would be Romanian champions Uta who would be the challenge, and they would be easily swatted away 6-1 on aggregate, powered by three goals across the tie from Zoran Filipovic. 
Come the quarters? It would be to East Germany, taking on Karl Zeiss Jena, and it followed the template of the previous two rounds. Middling performances away, here, losing the first leg 3-2 in Jena, followed by handing out a thrashing at the Maracanar, with 88,000 watching Sviesta win 4-0. Their semi-final opponents would be Balkan Brethren, Panathinaikos. The Greeks had had an easy route to the quarters, where they would need away goals to beat English champions Everton, and they would prove decisive again in what would be one of the most controversial ties in Sviena's Viestas, and perhaps in all of European history. At the Maracanar in the first leg, little seemed up for question. A Stefan Ostojic hat-trick dominating the Greeks in the air in front of 100,000, supplying Sviesta a 4-1 win in the first leg, and seemingly leaving only the job of tidying things up in Athens. In between the legs, Minam Milianic had even taken a trip to Wembley, host of the final, to scope it out in the expectation that Sviesta's participation was certain. Instead came a Greek tragedy, because it's incumbent upon me, as host, to utilise that joke in case of any loss involving a Greek side. At its simplest, the game was very, very likely fixed. The most famous rumour is that the game was sold not by the club, but at the level of Tito himself in exchange for a shipment of colour TVs. Form may have played a part. The weekend before the second leg, Sviesta had lost to Dinamo, knocking them mathematically out of contention, title contention. Along with that, Jajic was suspended and striker Stanislav Karasi had to play the game suffering from illness. In spite of the rumours of government and trade skullduggery, the most likely scenario was that Sviesta's food was spiked. Karasi had travelled with the team, but was kept on a separate floor and on a separate diet so as to keep his infection contained. Sviesta travelled with their own chefs and waiters, expecting trouble, but were not allowed to prepare the food itself and would be left as, as little more than tourists. Karasi would then be the Sviesta player to put in the best performance, in spite of a 40 degree temperature, or 104 Fahrenheit in the American parlance, by the end of the game, Sviesta had no energy left. Karasi forced a 90th minute corner, but never ended up taking it as the rest of the team were unable to actually get up to the box in time for the referee to allow it to be taken. Players stated having no memory of the game. Fullback Milin Novkovic recalled that the only thing he remembered around the game was being slapped awake by his father after getting back to Belgrade for having let the nation down. On the way back, it had been a plane ride from hell, as players tore up seats and generally behaved abnormally. Furthermore, even in spite of everything going wrong, Milian Miljanic didn't get off the bench or react to anything. The atmosphere was hostile too. Sviesta players were kept awake by music outside their hotel all night. At training, mobs turned up and threw fruit at the Sviesta players. While the Sviesta players warmed up, and this is entirely true, helicopters landed on the pitch and led topless women through the Sviesta crowd, which, well, 
it caused exactly the sort of distraction you'd expect to happen when that sort of thing occurs when you're warming up on the pitch. The ground was prepared to be left bare, so as to stop Svesta playing possession football as well. Crowd issues weren't uncommon in Greece at the time. The following season, Panonios would be ejected from the UEFA Cup after fans stormed the pitch in an away tie against Ferencvaros and attacked players, referees and the police. That there was some kind of fix was lent further credence when the wife of Greek di- dictator General Papadopoulos gave an interview stating that she was in the room when the fix was put in, quoting the dictator as stating, Sviesta will get a lot of money for letting us win today. And she stated that when she was told this, the Yugoslav ambassador to Greece confirmed it back to her. What is known for a fact is that soon after the game, Sviesta were able to purchase new pitch coverings to protect the standard of the Marikanar turf, and Yugoslavia was also able to access some new oil trade facilities through Thessaloniki. The truth of the matter is that no one will ever know for sure exactly what happened on the 28th of April 1971. At best, there is significant doubt over the honesty of the tie itself that would appear to require an explanation beyond merely the hostile atmosphere of the game. While that atmosphere does seem to have impacted performance, it seems clear that the other stuff was going on in the background. Panathinaikos went on to lose to Ajax in the final, as Total Football came to take over Europe. Even without Sviesta, that European Cup final came with Yugoslav interest. Lifting the trophy would be a man who had experienced final defeat twice before. Ajax's captain and scorer for Partizan all those years ago, Velibor Vasevic. The man who had played for Zvezda at the opening of the Marikanar, played for Partizan in the last game before the babies broke up, scored Ajax's only goal in their first European Cup final two years prior, and would become the first Yugoslav player to lift the European Cup in his final ever game. Hajduk had come back to life domestically, and Sviesta had come back to life in European competition in the first full season of the 1970s. History will repeat itself with the last full season of the decade, but that is for a little while away. Because next time on the History of Yugoslav Football podcast, the Bosnian control of the first half of the decade would reach its peak, as the title prepared to go to Sarajevo once more. Thank you for listening, and I'll catch you next time.